Podcast of the cinema. Uh, you're Dave White. I'm yeah, Alonzo. I was to say, Sorry, uh, I, I forget who which... am I and who are you and who are we? You're Dave White. I'm Alonzo Duraldi. We yeah. are both film critics. And that's all you need to know, I suppose. <laughs> now, normally, lately, I would say in like about the past year or two uh-huh. you have taken to introducing us by saying we're film critics for this or that outlet currently we're floating that's right as uh, outleteers um and then you always wrap it up by saying and we're married to each other yeah and you've said that sometimes yourself i have also said that sometimes myself and and i'm 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 and then you got all weird about it. No, I, I'm not being. Yeah, okay, I'm being. I'm... <laughs> Listeners, I would like to tell you that I'm being weird about our marriage. Our relationship status is weird. <laughs> yes, being married to Alonzo Duralde is weirding me out, man. <laughs> uh no. I, I think okay. Here's the you are referring to a conversation that we had off the mic. Yes. Um and I don't think okay, so all right, we every once a month we go on our uh our favorite local NPR station. Yes. KCRW to talk to the Madeline brand on press play. It's a wonderful experience. Always. But we have been branded by KCRW as the husbands. Yes. Like, they call us that. Yes. And it wasn't our idea. It wasn't our idea. We didn't invent it. They did it. And and I've always found it amusing. <laughs> but it never occurred to me to use it as a, a way of identifying us professionally. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, our job is not to be married to each other. It feels that way sometimes. Shut right? up. <laughs> <laughs> our job. See, I was going to be real sweet to you just now and oh, say, okay. you're never work, oh. darling. Oh, yeah. No thanks. But I, 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 I've lately been like, is this a professional credential? <laughs> And 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 and, and you I, think it reduces us to a novelty act? Is that what you? I mean? don't know. I don't know. It's not like I'm uncomfortable with being known as a married, you know, person to you. Mm-hmm. I just i I think it comes through as as a as a subject in the course of recording the show in the same way that 
the chicken thighs that are roasting in the oven <laughs> I become part of the show. Maybe we bury it at the end with the Patreon pitch. There are currently chicken thighs <laughs> roasting in the oven. It is. That is four, not a hypothetical. 4 p.m. on a Monday afternoon, and I just wanted some chicken thighs. And who can blame you? Yeah. So, um, it's dinner, you know. I don't know. It's just been something I've been toying around with in my head, like... Is it corny if we make a big thing about it? Is it? Yes. I think that's the the, the bottom. Is it corny? Okay. Um, Because if you recall, this was not how we did things when we started. It really honestly wasn't until... KCRW began referring to us as the husbands. That I can't help you with that. Ah, sorry. What's happening? Sometimes when you say KCRW, it turns on Siri. Why? I don't know. I guess CRW. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't until they started referring to us as the husbands that. You started saying it as an intro to us. Ah, uh, maybe. Show. Also, however, we are facing you know fascism 2.0 in this. I country. understand yeah. that. I'm 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 all for the visibility of us. Yes. Uh I believe we have been nothing but visible. Granted, <laughs> as an entity. For the whole time we've done this True. medium popular podcast, we plant our own tree. Yeah. Anyway, I was something I've been thinking about, but not nearly as much as I've been thinking about these chicken thighs. No, I, I granted, <laughs> and I, I know I the tell you, structure of things. Uh, in about 30, 40 minutes, I will want a pause, a pause in the podcast it's for you to, for you to get up and go check on them. Fine, uh, it's very important to me that they not overcook. They are my dinner. Do I have to stab one with the thermometer? Or? No, no, no. I've gotten to the place in my life where I can just tell uh, uh, when they're done. Okay. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of no. uh, of our uh, professional critical collaborations. Oh. Is someone asking us to do something else? Because I just don't have the energy. No, no. This is a thing we already did. Oh, relax. Oh, oh. What do we do? I need you to also relax on the... If if for some reason you get a bunch of new Twitter followers this weekend... What's happening? It's because... What's the, happening? The Destroy All Monsters episode... Oh! ...that we did for Max Film for the Max Fun Drive, which right. is happening now, will right. drop on Friday. Right. When did we even record that? It's been ages. Like 20... 19 something when, when was, it's been knows. a while since we recorded everything that. happened last week or 10 years ago i don't know <laughs> um but anyway i know how you know it was like a month ago i'm i listen i remember now okay. about a month ago we recorded yes a maximum film episode that is going to air when is it friday this friday yes. on the maximum fun network correct maximum fun is the podcast network no Yes. Maximum Film is the name of your show that exactly. you do with Ify and Drea. Yes. So, and on which I am suddenly, appropriately, yes. a guest. So, who else? To discuss one of the greatest films of all time. Of course. 
Destroy all monsters. Anyway, I know how you get the second like anybody on Twitter notices you're alive. You're like, ah, I must get rid of them. So uh, I, just, if you get any new followers this weekend, don't freak out. Be chill. Is that... <laughs> just don't make any sudden moves. <laughs> It'll be fine. I suspect that there will be a handful of new followers on Twitter who will then become disappointed. As I practically you never post, I never tweet anything anymore. I have an idea in my head about every other day, and I think I could tweet that. And then I think, eh, I why? To? Who's gonna yell at me? <laughs> like this utterly innocuous thing that I'm about to post, who's gonna get mad about it? You know, someone, uh, someone. Someone will. No, it's and, true. And, and, and it's, I never even post like my opinion about anything. I'll just post something like, oh, I did this thing or this thing is happening. And someone's like, oh, yeah, well, what about... <laughs> yeah, no, Matt Singer did a post last Stop week about, about there not being anything at the movies to take his five-year-old daughter to and got like this deluge of vitriol some, some people agreeing but a lot of people being like, bah, 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 bah. So he wrote a whole piece what, what were they upset about oh either that he should take her to see puss in boots which has been showing for the last like two months right um had he already seen i, th- I think he had already the, taken her to see the that. Puss in boots? Okay. um that that they should just stay home and watch a movie because there's so many streaming options and he's like yeah well that, that's great if you have no interest in the future of theaters but i'm actually trying to you know, right. teach my kid that right. going to movies is fun and really right. it's a special thing. Yes. Uh, and then they're all like, oh, well, but you know, Shazam opened. He's like, yeah, that's a movie for younger audiences, but not for five-year-olds. Right. There is violence and some swears and things in it. Some and swears. Some yeah. swears. I and guess. Some, there's some violence. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. There's like, like, uh, to, Lucy Liu has like hypnotic powers and... Yes. Uh, in in the Shazam movie. In the Shazam movie. All right. Are we reviewing that today? By we the way? are. You're going to review it. Okay. All the way to Shazam Town. Anyway, she whispered. I'm not going to. I didn't see the first one. I'm not watching this. Fair one. enough. She whispers yeah. into somebody's ear, and he walks off a building. Like it's, <laughs> it's kind of like maybe not for the youngest kids. Oh, I want you know. that power. <laughs> anyway. So yes, you're right. The most innocuous statement on Twitter can lead to people being not nice. But um, whatever. Block. Isn't there some like <laughs> dinosaur movie or something that's happening right now? Some little animated cartoon child film. Am I wrong about this? I we just have no idea. What walked you're past about. a poster for some. You didn't even know what it was. No, and, and you were mummies. Like, mummies. Mummies. When did that come out? I don't even know. It was, I, but it's new. It's still in theaters, it is, right? It is, yes, it was. There's a poster for it at Century City. Well, take your kid to the mummy. Movie and I'm then. like, what is? What even is mummies? Like, there, I've gotten. You know, it is. I can't even tell you how rare it is that a movie. This is a Warner Brothers movie, by the way. That opens with, like, I got no emails it's about... It's at the AMC Century City 15 right now. I got no emails that this movie existed, that there was a poster, that there was a trailer, that there was a press screening, that there was an opening date. Nothing. It just, like... Warner Brothers. This is some sort of weird, like, contractual obligation. Like, they're putting out the DVD and they had to do some kind of theatrical. So it's just sitting there at AMC Century City. I don't know anything about this movie. I don't know who made it. Hugh Bonneville is one of the voices. Ooh. So is Celia Imry. All righty. So, so it's British is, then. So is Sean Bean. Huh. So is, I'm just looking all this up. 
So is other people I don't know. According to IMDb, it follows three mummies as they end up in present-day London and embark on a jury, journey in search of an old ring belonging to the royal well, family. Well, there's your answer. Take your kid to the, see the British mummy cartoon. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, okay, oh, you know what? I bet this is like a Spanish movie that's been dubbed. Because the director's name is Juan Jesus Garcia Galocha. So it's uh, an animated feature from Spain... I'm guessing the yes. English language version came out yes. in the UK or whatever. And all right, yeah. Well, well, still, you know what? Animation can be in any language, and it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, that's I always love the people who get very snooty about subtitles. You know, yeah, how, how like, oh yes, I go to the subtitled anime films. I don't go to the dubbed version. I'm like, uh, dude, they're all the dubbed version. Right. They're either yep. dubbed by Japanese yeah. actors or they're dug, dubbed by English-speaking actors, but they're all dubbed. It's animation. That's how it works. Okay. Well, that yawn was not dubbed because I'm bored with the idea of a mummy's <laughs> cartoon. It's, a late, it's eight in the day, and I'm thinking about my chicken thighs. I understand. I'll want to be alone with my chicken thighs when it's when it's time to I'll, eat them. By I'll, the way. I'll leave the room. <laughs> I stole that idea. There was a moment on a Nigella Lawson show where she had made this giant sandwich. And then she said, I want to be alone with my sandwich. And she turned her back to the camera and walked away. You know what? If I give away everything, what is left for me? Yes, that's right. Um, uh, please talk about the, the the new Shazam. Is it what's it called? Shazam, Shazam Fury of the Gods. Fury of the Gods. Uh, I will, but first, yeah. in case you are tuning into this episode thinking that you were going to hear Kristen Lopez talking about her. Oh, new that's book. right. Um, we promised you on um, the, the 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 Patreon yes. uh, page the other day. Here's what happens. And we might have even set it into a microphone. If you subscribe to us at Patreon. Uh, no matter what level you subscribe at, you get a roughly daily uh, post on the page called LKRX. RX, like a prescription. Get it? It's pretty clever, I think. Terribly clever. Uh, And one of the RXs of this past week was Kristen Lopez's new book called But Have You Read the Book? That's the name of the book. Yes. The name of the book is But Have You Read the Book? And it's got about 50-ish, 52 uh, films that were adapted from books. And she, she, you know, writes about each one of them. Yeah, she kind of digs into the differences, what got left in and left out of adaptations. Tell you what I didn't know. What's that? We'll be talking about this to her when she is a guest. Uh I didn't know that Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was a novel. Uh, Yeah, and a play. Yeah. Um. And so, anyway, she I was mean, a, I knew it was a play before the. She thing, was like, she was all set to come on, uh, and then she had a schedule. Conflict. A schedule conflict, and so she'll be on this next episode. Well, I don't even want to say it out loud anymore. Listen, it's been planned that she's going to be on the next episode. I feel like when a guest and if is she coming, backs out again, she's dead to us. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. <laughs> anyway, but in the meantime, feel free to pick up her book. But have you read the book? Which yes. is very, which is that that is very who's on first title. Never thought right. about that before. The book is called. Have, but have you read? The but book? have you read the book? Yeah. Uh, available now where books are sold. So that's the news. Yes. she's not here today. She is not. But she'll be here next but time. Soon we hope, or soon. Uh, anyway, okay. So Shazam: Fury of the Gods. 
is, uh, you know, a sequel to the first Shazam movie. And what's it about? So this, what happened in the first Shazam movie? Did he just become Shazam? Uh, basically, yes. right. a, a wizard has waited for millennia to okay. find the pure-hearted. Well, that's great. Thing. But, uh, now you're anyway. Shazam. Now what are you gonna do? Okay, well, so yeah, there's a lot to go into here. Basically, why don't you make it condensed and brief? I, that's that's my gift. I will do my best. All anyway. Right. Billy Batson, who's been turned into, who becomes Shazam, is, in the first movie, he's like a 12-year-old kid. This movie's like 17, because they talk about how he's about to age out of his foster care. But, um, so the idea is that, you know, it's a little kid, but he says his name, he says the, the word Shazam, and he turns into this big strapping Zachary Levi. Oh! So all of the Shazam heroes are, like, you know, teens and tweens, but they become, you know, adult-seeming superheroes, and the conflict between the two is part of the joke of the movie. I understand. Um, in this movie, they've been heroing for a while, and apparently kind of ineptly. They're known as the Philadelphia fiascos, because, like, for example, they rescue a bunch of people from a collapsing bridge, but they don't stop the bridge from collapsing. Um, okay. Into the river or whatever. So, which already sort of brings up a thing that, that kind of occurs throughout the film, which is like, if they exist in the same world as Wonder Woman and Batman and Superman and the Justice League, why is no one tutoring them on the finer art of being a superhero? Because they're super strong, but they are teenagers who don't know anything. Basically. Okay. And apparently years later still don't know anything and are still goofing up. Uh, anyway. Is this because... DC uh, is bad at connecting all their movies the way that Marvel connects all their movies? Uh, probably, yes. All and right. that's part of what the whole James Gunn and that other guy coming in to sort of... Oh, you don't pay attention. I don't know what's happening. What are you talking about? James Gunn. You know who James Gunn is? I do know who James Gunn is. James Gunn and this other guy whose name I'm forgetting now uh, are, have basically been hired by, D, by Warner Brothers to be the equivalent of what Kevin Feige is at Marvel, which is to be like... They're going to run the show and everything is going to tie into each other because at the moment it's a hot mess. You've got like the Arrowverse on TV. You've got the Superman and Lois show. You've got the Shazam movies and you've got the Suicide Squad movies. And you've got the Justice League movies and they don't, they ostensibly coexist. Which in the is same the one world. with John Cena. That's Peacemaker, which is part of the Suicide Squad universe. So that's also DC? That's also DC. All right. Okay. Um, so, you know, so yeah, so the ideas are going to come in and sort of streamline it a bit. And that's all supposed to start with the Flash movie that's coming out later this year. Who's going to go see that? I don't know. When's it coming out? This year. Soon. Summertime. I saw the trailer. I don't know. I, yeah. Soon. Anyway, so so the, the, the Shazam movies are kind of like goofy and funny and not quite the same as the other DC movies, which is fine. And it's nice that they are different, but it's also weird that they're supposed to be living in the same world because then it raises all these weird questions. Anyway, so in the first movie, um, Billy Shazam makes a big show of like breaking this staff in half. And of course, it turns out that has repercussions and it frees the daughters of Atlas from this city where they've been imprisoned and they are played by uh, Dame Helen Mirren, Dame Lucy Liu, and Dame Rachel Zegler. Okay. Um, and they come to Earth wanting all of their god powers back and they want to take them from Billy and his friends. Billy, meanwhile, is kind of ambivalent about having these powers in the first place and doesn't know what to do with them. So, you know, the timing couldn't be better. Um, anyway, it's a lot of fight, 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 save the world 
things. All right. I had a good time with it. Okay. Like, I, I find these movies kind of charming and, and fun. And, and as long as you can stop yourself from asking all the questions that you should ask about how this superhero universe exists. Um, I never ask these kinds of questions in these kinds of films well, because you know. nothing matters. See, I think you would actually like the Shazam movies Do for you? that reason because right. nothing matters, all right. relatively speaking. And the first one is even kind of a Christmas movie. Um, so, yeah. Sure. Anyway, uh, I thought it was fine. I know people are like dumping on this one, and if you why are they dumping on this one? Because it because here's what I do know: ain't nobody going to see it. Yeah, I was at <laughs> the Grove on Saturday with friend and neighbor Gary Cotty. Yeah, because I needed to finally catch up on Creed three, which we will talk about in this episode. Yes, and we walked in, and it was noon mm-hmm. on a Saturday, and that means that. Screenings had already begun, like at least an hour to ninety minutes earlier than that, and kind of, sort of had the place to ourselves. <laughs> um, not the auditorium where Creed Three was playing, although we also kind of, sort of had that place to ourselves mm-hmm. as well. Um, but the whole place was just sort of like, well, you know, it's weird. And I said, "What opened this weekend that was supposed to be big and isn't big?" And Gary goes, "Oh, Shazam!" And I was like, "Hmm." Yeah, no, they had it on multiple screens. I know this because Thursday night I went to the first show yeah. to see it for for breakfast all day, and it was sparsely attended. Okay. And then all sparse of us were told, "Oh, we can't get the projector to work yet, so you can either come back for the six fifteen IMAX show, or we'll give you passes." So I switched my thing to the 615 IMAX show. Yeah. And even that was not like jammed. Like I went, when I, I went to Creed 3 on a Thursday night preview yeah. and that was full. Right. And in the IMAX house, in fact. And this one was not. Also, by the way, if you live in Los Angeles, I learned something that's potentially dangerous about the Grove IMAX house that you should know about. So it's house, which one is the new? Which one is the IMAX? It's house number one, which it's is the, the old number one. The old there. number one, which you All can right. exit through the back. Which used to have those Statler and Waldorf seats. Right, they don't anymore. Boom. I know. But they do still have that rear exit, so you don't have to go walk all the way yeah, down yeah, in yeah. front. And there's that little bathroom up there that nobody the knows elevator. about. You can take and the there's elevator, the elevator yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that you got to be careful about in that house. So I'm climbing up the stairs to go to the. To the, uh, the elevator platform. To go to the exit. Yes. And the top of the stairs and the exit are not exactly at the same level. There's a little step down <laughs> when you get to the top of the stairs to Why? then walk across the foyer to the exit. I don't know, but it was this still a design dark. flaw. It is a design flaw. That's a dangerous thing. It was dark. The credits were Especially like, for somebody like me. I got a cane. Very, well, here's the thing. Yeah. I stepped off into the dark and landed hard on um, my foot with the bone, the bone spur, spur in it. Foot. Yeah. Thankfully, I did not twist anything. I didn't fall, but it was just like, yeah, you know, it's that scary and thing. Did you, you step contact? Uh, I contacted a. Okay, I went. I opened my AMC <laughs> app and it said for customer service, go to the Facebook. So I yes. go to Facebook and yeah. I leave them this message, and then I get this like weird bot that wants to interact <laughs> with me, and I'm like, no, I've now, already said my piece. I I'm told done. You what's up? Go fix that thing. And then I get a message saying, okay, well, we're now ignoring you because you didn't interact with our bot. Okay. And then they asked me to take a survey and I took the survey and I said I didn't want to interact with your bot go read my message before somebody breaks their ankle on this thing yeah whether or not anyone's ever going to notice I don't know but I'm <laughs> someone will here. break their ankle and then they'll notice uh, yeah but yeah. you know who it ain't going to be 
me. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to get lawyered up next time I go to the <laughs> Grove. We'll see how it goes. Uh, no, you can't get lawyered up because you already know the problem. That's true. You Damn can't, it. You can't claim ignorance. Oh, just, you've, uh, you've put it out in the public. I just said it into a microphone. Everybody watch what out, I though. Thinking? Y'all watch out. <laughs> Go to the IMAX house. Yes, please be careful. <laughs> if you're exiting up the top. So uh, what you're saying is... It's a silly movie, but it it, work, it goes at a nice pace. There's some, there's some fun action stuff in it's it. It's not demanding. No. It's not, you know... Uh, uh, Heavy and important. No. There are some incredibly shameless... You're, you are selling it to me uh, Okay, pretty well, actually. Yeah. There, are, there are some Skittles product placement. I might, watch it, on the, I might watch it on our TV here. Yeah, when it pops up on HBO I'm Max. I'm going to go see it. it. If, if you have a free afternoon, watch the first Shazam. I think you might be surprised that it's actually like kind of fun. And it, it is breezy in a way that superhero movies tend not to be. Uh, even the Marvel ones... Like, have all this other, you know, story that you have to have seen the last five and they want you to get ready for the next five. And the the Shazam movies seem, like, fairly blissfully detached from almost everything else. And I think that's part of the appeal. Is it breezy like the 1973 Clint Eastwood film titled Breezy? Breezy, well, uh, it is a very different... With Kay Lenz. ...kind of viewing experience and... <laughs> and Bill Holden. And Bill Holden. <laughs> yeah, Breezy wasn't really all that breezy. Um, you know, it was... Not unbreezy. I suppose. It was a little sleazy. Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, okay, sure. <laughs> and wheezy. <laughs> Um, well, here's something I saw that you did not see. Yes. Uh, called, it's a, it's a Portuguese film uh-huh. called Infinite Sea. And is it still in theaters? Yes-ish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with an asterisk. Um, it played uh, for one week here at the Lemley Royal. And I think it might be shifting itself over to the Lumiere. Because okay. uh, that's that tends to be what happens after a film leaves the Lemley, it kind of winds up at the Lumiere. Okay. Lumiere is uh, this this old movie theater on Wilshire with three screens, and they rotate like ten movies at any given time. Wow! And they'll show like they'll show that film once or twice a day mm. on their three house you know system. Right, and. What's cool about what they do is that they show it at a different time each day of the week. Ah. So, like, if you're thinking, well, I can only go see it in the afternoon, you could pick your day. You couldn't, and it's not in the afternoon. On Monday, it might be on Wednesday. It might be on, on Tuesday or Thursday. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, and they really do collect all of, you know, first run art house and then more esoteric stuff. Uh, that might not be anywhere. Huh. Um, they also uh, sometimes host Acropolis mm. screenings. Uh, Acropolis is sort of a roving experimental film. Not always experimental, no. but quite often films that tend to be lean toward the experimental or side. Or that don't have a distributor. That don't have a distributor or any other way to be seen. Uh, so Lumiere is a very cool place in Los Angeles. If you live in Los Angeles, you should go there. 
Because uh, every time I go there, it's like the Grove on Saturday when Shazam opens. <laughs> like, it's very, it's a very quiet and peaceful place. If you want to be alone, if you want to be alone with your cinema, uh, you should you should go. So, what's Infinite Sea? Infinite Sea is a Portuguese film from a director named Carlos Amaral. Okay. This is his first film. He, sorry, it's his first feature. He's made some shorts. Mm. Before that, and concurrently with this, he is a uh, visual effects person for oh. Portuguese films and television. Oh. This is his first feature. And it is a sci-fi film, but not in the way maybe that you were thinking. Okay. Of it. Um, it is set in an unnamed Portuguese city that appears to have been mostly emptied out. Like all the lights are on, but there's not many people around. It feels like a very lonely, quiet place. We don't know what has happened. We don't know if this is a post-apocalyptic situation. It Looks like everything is still sort of functioning, uh, but you just don't see humans. The streets are often empty, uh, very little activity going on. There's one guy, his name is Miguel, and he lives in a big, empty, you know, uh, vacant sort of business loft space. And he is some kind of hacker. His computers are running all the time. Okay. What you find out is that he is trying to jump the queue to get into a space program that is sending civilians to a new planet to live. Huh. Um, it's got. It's definitely got an after the gold rush feel to it, where you are, you know, everyone has to get off the planet now and go to this new place. Oh, I'm sorry, you weren't selected to go. <laughs> Too bad, so sad. Yeah. Um, so he keeps trying to hack his way in. Meanwhile, there's a woman named Eva, who he meets at a local swimming pool. He's not very good at swimming, but he goes there anyway. She's swimming laps. Again, they're the only two people at the swimming pool. They meet. They become tentatively romantically involved, although eventually they are, you know, sleeping uh, together in the same spot. He teaches her to ride a bicycle. He explains what he's doing with the planet. She's like, what if there's nothing there? And he's like, yeah, what if they're sending us in, into space just to kill us? Yeah. <laughs> um, she teaches him two very important things, though. I'd say more than uh, more important than riding a bicycle. She teaches him to float in the pool. And he has constant dreams that are that find him floating under... Floating in a pool or submerged underwater, just sort of drifting through water and or drifting into space. So he's floating in the water. He's floating in space, depending on what night he's dreaming the dream. Hmm. She also teaches him to sleep because he's bad at sleeping. So all of this is taking place in a way uh, that is visually very 
spooky and moody and ambiguous. The color palette is a lot of like dark blue, night blue, grays. You know, the light from a of a of a, of a computer screen in an otherwise dark room. Uh, it is, it is gorgeous to look at. He's a visual effects guy. You know, it's very poetic. It's very dreamy. There's very little dialogue. You really have to be alert to the the, the quiet things people are saying and doing to piece together who they are, what they want, and where they think they might be going. It's in this way, it's kind of like a Simon Lang film because mm-hmm. it is this pervasive feeling of loneliness throughout. Although in a Simon Lang film, it is simultaneously like uh, darker and more comedic sometimes as well Mm. um here it's just a little self-consciously gorgeous okay (laughs) if i'm gonna complain about something sure i i began to feel as though i was watching you know bleu de chanel you know (laughs) you know um but i'm fine with that because the reason i think about bleu de chanel is because it's a gorgeous ad sure yeah what was that? This is a gorgeous ad for Malaise. Existential <laughs> sadness about maybe the world coming to an end and not wanting to be the last one left behind in the city and willing to break the rules to go to space where they might be murdering you. <laughs> we don't know. What was that Brazilian Outfest movie that was like it was set on a world where most people had gone to space? And there's just people sort of like making assignations with each other all the time. Was it called The Cure? Maybe. I, think I just when you started talking called. about you know yeah. that, I just it was the first thing I thought of. For some yeah, reason. I think it was called The Cure, and I remember really enjoying it. Yeah, no, it was very cool. It was it was it was, it was a brightly colorful film uh, about you know the world is the world is coming to an end let's all the queer people have sex <laughs> basically <laughs> um so we both watched moving on yes the new uh uh, uh uh film starring lily tomlin and jane fonda yes directed by paul whites paul whites and written by paul whites as yes. well so why don't you describe uh what is uh, what's going on in this movie? Sure. So uh, Paul White's reuniting with his grandma star, uh, Lily Tomlin, which he also wrote and directed. This time around, um, Jane Fonda plays a, a woman who lives in Ohio, uh, who is divorced, um, seems more devoted to her corgi than to her daughter and grandchildren. And uh, she travels to Los Angeles for the funeral of an old friend. And... When she arrives at the funeral, she meets uh, the widower, played by Malcolm McDowell, and immediately tells him, I'm going to murder you. Yeah. Uh, Lily Tomlin. We don't know why, and it's treated very comically. Yes. Okay. Uh, Lily Tomlin plays the sort of the other close college friend who we find out had her own uh, close relationship with the deceased. And, um, you know, is a, is a retired cellist who now lives in an independent living facility for older people. 
Uh, but yeah, what we learn is that Jane Fonda's character was sexually assaulted by the Malcolm McDowell character decades earlier. And that this incident has haunted her her entire life. She, yep. she never reported it. She never really was able to talk about it with anyone. It ruined her relationships. It um, traumatized her for, for her entire life. And now that her friend is gone, she has no problem with the idea of Murdering. killing uh, the Malcolm McDowell character. Yeah. Now, this setup is the making for a lot of different kinds of movies. Uh-huh. It could be a very dark comedy. I know where be, you're going with this. It and we could, haven't even discussed this until right now. Yeah, it, it could be a very dark <laughs> comedy. It could be an intense emotional drama. And it kind of isn't any of them. Right. And it, it comes off feeling... It, it, it's a short movie. It's like 80, 85 minutes. Yeah. And I... I there's so much that is leaving on the table that I think yes. they could really dig into. At one point, Fonda... You could have added another 10 minutes to this film with more conversations about why the parties involved think the way they do, yes. act the way they do, all of it. Yes. Continue. There's a, whole, there's a whole great sequence where Jane Fonda uh, reunites with her ex-husband, played by Richard Roundtree, the, Who isn't given a whole lot to do here except show up and be really hot grandpa. Yes, it is, it's the Shaft-Barbarella yeah. meeting you've always wanted. Yeah. Uh, but there needs to be more of him. And it doesn't matter that they're meeting in their 80s because they're still both oh, gorgeous. Oh, smoking hot. <laughs> um, you know, and, and one of the things that I loved about Grandma was that not only did it give Lily Tomlin this amazing character to play and yeah. one of her best performances ever, but it gave Sam Elliott the chance to play a character that was not the usual Sam Elliott character. Right. And so I thought, oh, what's Richard Roundtree going to get in this movie that is going to show us a whole new side of him? Not much. Not much. And this whole movie is not enough. I, I feel like they, there's so much more they could have dug into. They could have really created something. Because again, this premise, these characters, it's all there. But what we're left with just feels kind of rushed and more like an episode of an anthology TV series than a movie. And it just left me wanting it to be another half hour. This film is being sold like a comedy, comedy, comedy. I saw the trailer uh, at a, a, a movie theater a while back and thought, oh, yeah, this was, looks funny. It's the stars of Grace and Frankie and Amy for Brady. I love uh, Lily Tomlin. I love Jane Fonda. I love them together mm-hmm. very much. Um. And this looks funny. I'll go. And then, you know, I saw it. And about 40, 30 minutes in, I thought, wait a second. This is really heavy and sad. And someone is contemplating murder and for a good reason. And I'm getting this unhappy feeling in my stomach about what's going to transpire. In this film, um, and then it it pulls all the punches that you hoped it wouldn't, and tonally it's kind of all over the place yeah. with not knowing when it should be funny and when it should be Stark. Ups- upsetting. Yeah. Because again, the premise is upsetting. Once you find out that she's not just you know going to murder him because he's a 
you know, a, 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 an abstractly bad person. Yeah, he's not Dabney Coleman in Nine yeah. to Five. He's he much, is much worse. He is a rapist, yeah. and and then you find out all these other things about the Malcolm McDowell character that make you stop and think, okay, wait, 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 wait. Everyone needs to stop and have a conversation right now. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. I'll say this. Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin have such an easy winning presence chemistry with each other. Yes. No matter where they are, even if it's in a show like Grace and Frankie that I only watched like four episodes of in its entirety with you on the couch. You were a big fan and yeah, I was I like, watched this show's thing. not exactly <laughs> as funny as I want it to be. And so I don't know how invested I'm going to get in it. Um, Watching them be interviewed on a talk show together is a true delight. Oh, yeah. And it comes back to that thing that Roger Ebert once said, is this movie better than a a video of these people eating dinner together? No. Particularly when you have such heavy, harrowing subject matter that isn't handled thoughtfully. Yeah. I I mean, like, you could almost imagine... The Ingmar Bergman move version of this right. this very story, right. you know. But here's the thing: it's not like you couldn't turn. Like I said, this could be a very dark comedy about right. revenge yep. and about you know, sort of the the uh, the obliviousness of the Malcolm McDowell character. You know, right. all of these things are, right. are just sitting there, and the movie never quite picks a way to go and I knew more about it going in than you did I knew the basic premise so right. it wasn't like I was disappointed that it wasn't the haha you know that I was expecting no, it's not that I was disappointed that it wasn't a haha I was like blindsided sure. by uh, by a a film that was sold to me entirely differently India okay fair <laughs> enough well, what I mean to say is I, I didn't go in with expectations of something else okay. plot wise but I did go in with expectations of you know the human literacy that grandma has. I think right. it's a movie that, like, in, over the course of one day, introduces you to these really interesting characters and the dynamics between them. And this movie just kind of skates around a lot of things. Right. Uh, Lily Tomlin has all the good lines. Mm. She is, you know, the deadpan straight shooter throughout no pun intended this is a film about guns um and fonda at least is playing a a, a different character than we usually get to see her play which right. is interesting right so uh, see grandma is what i'm saying i i i i got i'm not a fan of uh paul white's films i think i i had similar uh problems watching grandma okay it was less interesting to me than it was to you i i think i think he's timid Hmm. as a filmmaker i think he wants to he wants everything to be smoothed over and nice and let everyone off the hook somehow right regardless of whether or not they have to you know well i won't to say any more would be to spoil it fair enough yeah but 
Yeah, it's uh, he, he's been on he's been on not the greatest streak of late. Oh, like, really? What's else? Well, what else has he not done that I didn't like? Well, uh, he did that. What movie, else has he done that I didn't like? He did that movie of Bel Canto, which barely got released. Remind me what that was. It was a best-selling novel about the like opera singer who was taken hostage in a third-world country. Or okay, something. I didn't even see it. Yeah, it barely got barely got All released. Right. Uh, a, that that Kevin Hart father movie, uh, fatherhood movie that I never even wanted to watch. It's okay. Just, unbearable right uh admission oh that's bad yeah <laughs> um you know he did like a, god i forgot admission even existed yeah you know little fuckers and cirque du freak the vampire's assistant which i didn't hate but you know uh, american dreams with a z i liked in good company i liked about All a right. boy so, so oh yeah, okay so he made about a boy yeah he All had, right he about, and his brother together. about a boy <clears throat> Everybody, go watch About a Boy. <laughs> we can agree on that. One. We can agree on About a Boy. Yes. Little baby Nicholas Holt. That's right. Who grew up to be tall man Nicholas yes. Holt on the Catherine the Great show. What's that called? Uh, the, the, the Great. The Great. Yeah. Anyway, we are moving on. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Uh, to Creed 3, please pause the recording. I have some chicken thighs to inspect. Check those chickens. And we're back. Yes. Are, they, are they ready, Dave? This apartment smells so good. Right it does. Um, no, they're not ready. I need to give them another, like, seven minutes in the oven. I'm going to... Cook my meat. I'm going <laughs> to... Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> I'm going to uh, set my alarm. Listeners, you're on a chicken thigh journey with us right now. Yes. In seven minutes, this pause, this podcast will be paused Strap once again. Strap yourselves in. For, uh, let's talk about Creed Three. Sure. Explain. Uh, okay, so uh, Michael B. Jordan is directing this time. It's his, it's his debut. Right. And we we enter we re-enter the life of Adonis Creed, seemingly on top of the world. He is uh, he's retiring as the champ. He's going to be spending more time with uh, his his lovely wife, played by Tessa Thompson, and uh, their daughter, played by Mila Davis-Kent. And yet, uh, not all is well, because back into Creed's life comes uh, uh, Damien, who is a childhood friend of his. When they were teenagers, Damien was a boxer on the rise. Like, Adonis was his corner man, and, you know, Damien was a Golden Gloves champion and, you know, had everything all laid out in front of him. And then uh, things happened one night, and Damien wound up going to jail. Adonis winds up becoming the heavyweight champion. Now Damien is back, and he wants his own shot at the title. At first, you know, Adonis is glad to see him and happy to help out, but things take a dark turn, and eventually the two of them have to climb into the ring to face off against each other. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that... This is the least, uh, there is the least amount of Rocky in any Rocky movie in this movie. Because mm -hmm. yeah. Stallone apparently did not care for some of the plot turns and opted out. Uh, so he's mentioned a few times, but I didn't really miss him, you know? Like, Rocky is the, he's, he's the, the, the inciting incident of 50-odd years ago. Not quite, 40, 50, 45 years ago. 47 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but you know we've we've moved on as a franchise right. to this new thing as a people as a people. Yeah, um, and so uh, 
I think a lot of this movie is really effective. I think it's it's a it's an exciting boxing movie. I think it, it's interesting to sort of the movie does I think uh, unravel new layers of Adonis Creed that we hadn't really seen before, and his relationship with his mother and his upbringing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, where this movie kind of falls apart for me is that, you know, first of all, Jonathan Majors, obviously one of our great actors. So to see him and Michael B. Jordan facing off, it's like if De Niro and Pacino had fought each other in Raging Bull or right. something. Like they're both, you know, yep. super incredible actors, top of their game. Uh, but for me, ultimately, Damien winds up being more of an idea than a character. Like he is this walking representation of creed's guilt and his ambivalence about his past and his you know his unaddressed you know trauma from childhood and all these things which is all interesting and that character could certainly exist metaphorically but he also needs to be a character especially when jonathan majors is making is putting everything he can into him Mm -hmm. and so i don't know for that that for me kind of is is the main thing that, that keeps it from working i've heard people complain that Creed is so not the underdog at this point. He's nope. got big gorgeous house and cars and a family and a Ralph Lauren billboard on Sunset Boulevard. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, like, a good, that's a good moment. The, the training montage <laughs> literally has him dragging his own private plane. <laughs> so there is, that's a bit of a, that, that, that's a switch on the usual formula here. Go, you go, can, you go can, billionaire. You, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that kind of and again I know I'm, I'm leading with all the things that bothered me but for the most part yeah. I, I enjoyed this film I think it's, it's well made I think that Jordan has a sense of you know the pacing and stuff that, that I'd like to see what else he does as a director I think he does a fine job here um, There's they introduce a plot point early on where the daughter in her school is acting out by punching kids rather than, you know, processing her feelings or whatever. Right. And of course that all comes back to, you know, I learned it from you, dad. (laughs) But then the movie kind of drops it. And by the end of it, it's like, yay, look at her punch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Maybe, maybe it's the uh, uh, art house, you know, disease. That I have inside me. <laughs> but I look at a film like this and I think that bodies should carry the story mm. in a Beautrevi sort of way, you know? Sure. Um, and, and sometimes they do. Um, particularly Jonathan Majors. Uh, who the tragedy of his character is in every frame that he is in. Yeah. And he communicates that uh, so well. So well, in fact, that when he turns somewhat villainous in the middle of the film, you're thinking, you know what? I feel so bad for you. I'm still rooting for you. That I'm still rooting for you, yeah. Um, and, And in that way... As as a as a as a story about two people, uh, you know, who really care for each other, but who must battle each other, it reminded me a little bit of Warrior, mm. which we've talked about um, before. But historically, cinematically, the boxing movie is a melodrama, and there's a lot of that here. I'm going to talk about what I don't like. Okay. 
Um, the the spinning of melodramatic plates becomes a little distracting. And I will say this, there is a Felicia Rashad health crisis subplot here, I'm not going to give anything away, uh-huh. that feels like no one even went to a wiki page <laughs> to see what that thing looks to like. To find out what that thing looks like, because mm-hmm. when it happens in the film, you're like, I'm sorry, what's going on right now? <laughs> Um, so what it does, I, what really pays off for me here, uh, is the final fight. Yes. Because it is a dream ballet straight out of like carousel. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, oh, there we go. Chickens. Woo. We'll be right back. (laughs) Yeah. That feels like the boldest choice. And I think it pays off. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Um. It's if (laughs) when you're watching it, you're thinking, okay, well, this is already a green screen situation, so (laughs) why not? So, (laughs) so why not do this other stuff that happens? Um, and I I realized as I was pulling the chicken thighs out of the oven, uh, that uh, I meant Oklahoma. Oh, right, not carousel. Carousel might have a dream ballet too. I I don't don't remember if carousel has a dream ballet. But that, that was that was a whole period of the, the whole dream ballet time. Singing in the Rain had one. But I also appreciated here that there are more than a few moments of genuine adult man intimacy between two straight guys who truly love each other. You know, True. And, and and care for each other. And and there's not enough of that in cinema. Uh, there is not enough uh, in terms of like men declaring their feelings uh, and expressing themselves. True. And while, you know, the characters in this film are not always great at expressing themselves, they're doing it in their own way. Yes. So I like that. Overall, you know, I like this more than Creed 2. Sure. Maybe not as much as the first one. Well, no. Um, the, 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 and I'm just there are a bunch assume. of Googlers in the credits of this one. Uh, oh, are there? There's like I one who co-wrote it and another one who that. produced it. I don't know what their relation is, but I, um, yeah, you know, if the world is going to be full of franchises, mm-hmm. let them be, you know, reasonably interesting franchises like this. Sure, because God knows there are plenty that are not. Uh, agreed. <laughs> worth your time. I like this. Yeah. So, um, is there anything else that I needed to say about it? I'm looking through my notes. Uh, you know, uh, I there's you know Tessa Thompson always great. I really liked uh, Mila Davis Kent as young Amara Creed. I thought she was very good, very natural. Um, not you know. Adorable kid, you know, like you know, I hate an adorable kid, yeah, no, yeah, and uh, yeah, seriously, I won't be surprised if 15 years from now we're talking about the Amara Creed sequel where oh, yeah. she becomes the women's heavyweight champ, probably. All right, now, as if you've been listening to this uh, podcast for very long, you know that thanks to uh, the various COVIDs. 
and uh, my own situation with uh, hip arthritis keeping me from extra long movies uh, until they stream. Not being able to get out to some theaters, you know, particularly some of the more far-flung art house uh, places where I would normally be digging into, you know, the the, the micro distributions <laughs> of of the world. I feel like for quite a while now, I have been catching up. Each week, there's something that came out months ago that I'm finally catching up to. Yes. This episode uh, is the same. <laughs> I have finally given myself the time to sit down and watch Wakanda Forever. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Um, and I, I think maybe this should just become a like a, its own little segment. segment. You know, <laughs> Dave for, catches up. For a long time, you and I did a, a, a physical media, you know, pick of the week yeah. kind of thing. And we kind of let that fall by the wayside. Uh when everything was streaming. When everything was streaming. And we never we didn't really go back and pick it up as a True. as a segment. But I see for the foreseeable future, as I have, you know, hip replacement surgery and then the recovery from that, and that's gonna keep me out of the game for a little bit in terms of like a lot of new stuff. Um I'm gonna just keep playing catch up here. All right. So No one minds, Dave. Here, no 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 no, I'm not apologizing for this. I'm saying that this is what's happening. This is our new segment. It's Dave White is late. <laughs> I like it. This week, Dave White is late to Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. I watched it on Disney+. Plus. I did not see it in the cinema as it is three hours long. Yes. It had the same running time, I think even a little bit longer than Tar, mm-hmm. which I also waited to watch. Until when the when the when the peacock the the, the, the yeah, it came to us. So here's a really funny here's a funny here's a funny discrepancy. That movie that I was just talking about called Infinite Sea, the mm-hmm. Portuguese film. Up until two days ago, there were no English language reviews wow. on the internet of this film. That's how teeny tiny, teeny tiny it is in terms of getting into theaters. It is about to stream on Amazon streaming uh, within the next couple weeks. But it's currently in very, very, very limited theatrical art house release. There are about eight reviews on the internet that are all in Portuguese or Italian. I cannot read either of those languages. So up only it's only been about the past couple of days that I've started to see a trickle of reviews written by uh, writers uh, who write in English. Mm-hmm. You go to Metacritic for the Black Panther Wakanda Forever uh, reviews. There are like Hundreds. Well, yeah. (laughs) All of that to say this. I am so late that my ideas don't matter. (laughs) Not true. Except at this table full of chicken thighs where they super do matter. In the marketplace of ideas that is our home. Uh, Here's what I like about Wakanda Forever. Number one. 
Angela Bassett's imperiousness. Mm-hmm. More than that, this is my number two thing, because it's not strictly limited to Angela Bassett. The way that this film con- communicates genuine grief. Yeah. It's not just, oh, is the apartment renovators I, banging around it sounds underneath like. us again? It sounds like they are. Um, genuine grief. Yes. Being communicated in here, in this film. It is not a fictional story when it comes to this grief. True. It's a real story. It's a real life story that had to be addressed, transcribed into this fictional universe. Right. And you feel it every single time people talk about T'Challa's death. Because Chadwick Boseman is really gone. And watching Angela Bassett get the the bulk of that screen time to express that grief is the reason she was nominated for an Academy Award. Yep. Um, and I would have enjoyed a little Catherine Hepburn, Barbara Streisand, Ty situation No kidding. On. It would have yeah. been nice. Uh, I also really like how these two Black Panther films seem to sit outside the larger Marvel world. Now, you can feel in this one a few tendrils of connectivity to what the other Marvel, you know, characters are doing. And I assume, you know, in the future, you know, there's going to be more of that. But here... It, it, it feels like you could watch the Black Panther films and not watch any of the other Marvel movies and you'd be fine. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know, you might wonder what Julia Louis-Dreyfus is doing in there, but beyond that... Yeah. Right. Um, I also love how, so far now, we've been given villains in these two films who are right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait a second, must you be a villain? Because you could all just collaborate, couldn't you? <laughs> Um, I appreciated the uh, what I call what I would call a critique of the endlessness of wars, mm-hmm. rather than sort of just accepting it the way that other superhero movies do. You know, they make audiences comfortable with encroaching authoritarianism and True. fascism and top-down salvation for the planet. With wars, star and otherwise. Yeah. So, I like that. I don't know how long it'll last as these characters and these scenarios get, you know, subsumed, grafted into the other Marvel uh, narratives. I also love that it is super beautiful looking, just like the first one was. I mean, you know, and it's all, you know, green screen animation whatever you know sure. but that's fine because it looks so gorgeous yeah everything about it looks gorgeous um i was not bored the running time it is long but it's it's giving you a lot of stuff we don't have to go over the plot you've probably already seen it <laughs> but i am here to finally at the last possible moment 
endorse and yes. Black Panther Wakanda forever. There you go. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, we have some... Worth the wait, wasn't it? We have some long letters. Do we? Yes. Well, I'll read them quickly because I'm very hungry. Well... And I've got some chicken thighs. We've been sitting on some of these for a while. Need and I just... my attention. We have two of them, in fact, from, from one of our most fascinating yet lengthiest letter writer. Uh, okay. Um, Michelle uh, says, uh, Michelle from Ottawa here. Hmm. Longtime listener, first time letter writer. Your show is such a cozy treat. To keep me warm on my cold Canadian bus rides to work in the morning. For that, I'm endlessly grateful. This letter... Oh, this letter is from a week ago. Yes. I just finished the most recent episode, and I was especially excited to hear Dave's thoughts on Skinamarink, which, while being an endurance-testing viewing experience, has stayed with me for weeks uh, of millennial nostalgia. Uh, on the exact same age as the director, give or take a couple of months, and the exact same family breakdown, only in this case my brother is the older sibling. This film seemed familiar to me in the same way a recurring dream does. I played with the same toys, I watched the same reruns, I stared at the same uh, boob-shaped overhead lighting, which is a suburban Canada staple. <laughs> the film offers so much time to excavate a storyline by connecting the images with moments from your own childhood, and even without all of the daddy issues, it gave me plenty to chew on, but it's not the movie that's been eating at me. Way back in December of 2022, I joined my horror movie meetup club for a late-night screening of Luca Guadagnino's Bones and All. There's one I still need to catch up on. Oh, you haven't? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The film contained haunting images and great performances, but there was one especially shocking scene that stuck with me. If you've seen the film, you may already know what it is, but here's a trigger warning for targeted violence against a queer character, just in case. Should I be reading this? I, I had forgotten that you had not seen the movie, so maybe we should save it until you have. Well, I'm not going to read the paragraph where she describes the scene. Okay. Uh... uh I did what any self-respecting film fan would do. I googled it. I was horrified to find countless reviews, articles, and Twitter threads touting this film as a queer masterpiece, linking the characters' uh, cannibalistic tendencies to their queerness. This, well, you know, I've long said that if we were, you know, stuck on an island, uh, you and me, I would, I would immediately cook you and eat you. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, if you, I'm if you well, died... I know I'm well marbled. You really are. And think how delicious it would be. The flavor. Yeah. Um, this isn't really Guadagnino's fault. In fact, he seemed to baffled at the idea the few times I found it brought up to him in interviews. But, he was, but I was still left confused as to why so many people seem to truly love this metaphor. That discomfort idled for moments, for months, until a very recent commute during which I finally listened to the Maximum Film Podcast episode discussing the movie, and I was curious to hear your takes. The basic concept of cannibalism equals queerness as allegory doesn't necessarily bother me. I love hot takes on movies. They're why I listen to film podcasts, but only the good ones, of course. <laughs> My problem is that apart from our quirky, adorable leads, every single cannibal in this movie is a complete monster. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, she describes 
stuff about Mark Rylance's character that I won't uh, spoil. Uh, I'm going to scroll down a little more here. Not that there's anything wrong with being a cannibal, in quotes, <laughs> assuming that you're a young, stick-thin movie star presenting as anything else, apart from a few cheeky nibbles. <laughs> It's cool to experiment with eating people, but don't be like those gross old cannibals. <laughs> um, uh, okay, I'm, there's more spoilers, more spoilers, more spoilers. I'm going to scroll down to the end of this letter. I promise I'm not trying to be too negative. No metaphor is perfect, especially when it comes to film. People can interpret art however they like, but I don't particularly... particularly Desire, a queer love story where the only love depicted is desperate to be something else. Blood and cannibalism aren't that scary to a horror geek, but harmful allegory is, and I do find myself wondering what the intention really was here. Guadagnino says the film is for weirdos in general, but even in that case, couldn't some of the less sexy cannibals still be decent? <laughs> Anyway, I'm reading too deeply into all this. What matters is, Alonzo's right. This movie doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to go cleanse my palate by finally streaming Queer for Fear and learn about some more intentional queer horror. Once again, thank you both for all the comfort and thoughtful conversation that you share with us. Have a great supper. Oh, wow. She, she knew we were roasting chicken thighs. <laughs> Very intuitive. Thank you, Michelle. The next letter, and these are two from the same person? Yes. Julius! Yes. Should I read one before I read the other? They're in no particular order. All right. Uh, this is full of spoilers for the movie We Have a Ghost. Yes. So Should I read this letter? That movie's been out for weeks, and it's terrible, so... <laughs> because it is terrible, we are going to spoil it. Uh, look, we're also giving you plenty of notice that if you want to lean over and hit the pause button or stop the podcast entirely, the next Julius letter is also so. about is spoilers about uh, knock at the cab cabin, knock at the cabin spoilers. Yes, um, so you have. I'm giving you y'all have right. lots of warning um, now for both these movies that have been out for quite some time. All right, I'm going to read both these letters. They are full of spoilers. I didn't want to read the spoilers for uh, Bones and All, mostly because I still haven't seen it. And because people are saying it's really good, um, except Alonzo. Correct. All right. If you don't want to hear spoilers for Knock at the Cabin or We Have a Ghost, beat it. Know that we had chicken for dinner and it was delicious. Turn it off. Turn it off. Are you ready? Here we go. In three, two. two. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash linoleumknife. A variety of levels. Content that's fun to enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's see what I did there. Nice. Call All right. Back. Here come the letters, both of them from Julius. Dear David Alonso, apologies for length. <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan's A Knock at the Cabin is generating a ton of conversation, and rightfully so, due to its view of modern politics but it doesn't seem like anybody is actually talking about how the changes to the book's ending actually inverts the message and makes the movie a whole lot more regressive. <laughs> Spoiler alert, but maybe it will teach you before you record the double episode. Maybe it will reach you before you record the double episode. This is from February, this letter. Yes. The original novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, 
features a lot of the same bigger plot points as Shyamalan's movie and features much of the same political impact. A gay, somewhat well-off couple from the coast go to a cabin in the woods to get terrorized by a group of people who claim to have never met before but were led to the same cabin to make a blood sacrifice to save the world from the apocalypse. The book still has one member of the terrorists having previously attacked one of the gay men and going to prison for it, and that history playing into the are they homophobes playing a very mean game or are they actually right? Moral dilemma at the center of the story. Richard Lawson, in an essay for Vanity Fair, identifies all of these elements as thrilling because it allows a conversation to happen. But what Lawson and the film community at large isn't addressing is the changes to the book's ending and how that makes the movie a lot more propagandistic and tilted, negating all the dynamic conversation that preceded it. The ending of the novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, kills off Wen, the adopted daughter, by her being accidentally shot while one of the men and one of the captors is fighting over the gun. And even after her death, the apocalypse continues. The final moments of the novel have the two fathers in a car, and one of them contemplates sacrificing himself to see if that would stop the apocalypse, and the other stopping him by saying that he doesn't believe in a god that would not take Wen's sacrifice as enough to stop the apocalypse. They drive into the future ready to face the world's end. While being very The Cabin in the Woods in its view of self-sacrifice to, to prevent an apocalypse, the ending of The Cabin at the End of the World is very open-ended. It doesn't answer whether the cultists are right. One of the three was killed and nothing happened. Were the terrorizers wrong and terrorizing a gay couple because they had a severe miscalcul they made a severe miscalculation? Were they just being a bunch of were they just using a bunch of apocalyptic actions to justify their own terroristic behavior? What if the terrorizers were actually right? Is the gay couple just being selfish? It's, it's a very open-ended finale that asks a lot of questions about the nature of religious fanaticism and the nature of belief without providing answers. Now, let's flip over to the ending of Knock at the Cabin. Instead of killing Wen, the daughter, M. Night Shyamalan kills off one of the gay men. And instead of the apocalypse continuing on, and the father and Wen going off into an uncertain future, the apocalypse stops. What that ending does is flip a lot of the ambiguity of the original novel on its head, and it becomes a more disturbed morality. Instead of asking whether the fanatics could be right, Shyamalan answers that they were right. By stopping the apocalypse, Shyamalan is saying that the people terrorizing the well-off yuppie gay couple were justified in doing so, and that it may not have had anything to do with homophobia, but everything to do with their justified and righteous beliefs. Now, I don't think M. Night Shyamalan is a homophobe or even a religious fanatic. I believe that the changes of the ending were because neither he nor the studio had the stomach for killing a child in a blockbuster. Not to mention letting the world end. Nor for an apocalyptic ending with moral ambiguity like the original novel. Right. I think the changes for the movie's ending stemmed from wanting to deviate from the ending of The Cabin in the Woods, wanting to save the kid, and wanting to comfort the audience that the world was not ending. But the changes in the ending reduces the gay couple to mere pawns in the plans of a cruel god. It removes their agency by saying that they must do this, and they were wrong to ever doubt the fanatics. 
Shyamalan thinks he is also leaving in ambiguity of whether or not this is targeted homophobia and justifying the killing of gay people. But what the ending is actually doing is suggesting that maybe gay people do deserve to die. <laughs> Shyamalan's removal of the ambiguity of whether the fanatics were right or not adds in the morally bankrupt reading at the end. The morally bankrupt reading of the end. In his defense of the movie not his review, Richard Lawson wrote that this possibility of the moral reading that the fanatics are right is dangerous, bold, and thus grimly electrifying. That's in quotes. Mm. It's a very privileged thing to say. He's right in that the possibility of the reading is dangerous, that it could be or is seen as a validation of a homophobic fanatic's belief system, is morally corrupt, especially coming from a heterosexual such as M. Night Shyamalan. Whether or not there are real-world implications of it, what this movie is doing, intentionally or not, is selling people the idea that far-right-wing fanatics might be justified. Lawson doesn't actually wrestle with that idea. His defense merely wrestles with the wrestling of that idea, <laughs> but stays away from thinking about the idea itself. I wish he would go one step further and think about the implications of those, idea, of those ideas, but that's too much to ask. The novel and the ambiguous questions that came from it are far more interesting than what Shyamalan is asking us to consider. Yeah, when I first heard what the the I was I was already annoyed by the movie, and then when I was told how the book ended, I was even more annoyed because like, well, then why are you even doing this story if you're gonna like take you know this sort of weak tea version and like completely subvert the message of it? So. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it, 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 it reduces this whole, you know, complicated plot about like, you know, homophobia and, and, and the end of the world and a, and a god that demands a blood sacrifice and turns it into the beach that makes you old, you know. <laughs> All right. Other letter from Julius yes. about We Have a Ghost. Yes. He says, I read We Have a Ghost as a classically gay allegory. Spoilers to follow. Go on. Um, the main character, Kevin, is a young black teenager with a small hoop in his ear who listens to classic rock, like Alice Cooper from 50 years ago, rather than the soul R&B or hip-hop that his parents and siblings are listening to. He is also musically inclined and sits around his house playing the guitar, rather than playing sports. David Harbour's Ernest the Ghost is styled almost like a memory of the Predator from Boys Beware or any other... <laughs> if y'all have never watched Boys Beware, Whoa. you can go to YouTube. Oh, yeah. It's from the 50s, early 60s. 50s. It is insane. Yeah. And it is a real thing. How long is it? 20 minutes? Yeah, it's like it's an old classroom film basically warning boys to Against like... Against... To stay away from... Gay men. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of the boys beware uh, hoodie, he's got an old bowling shirt. Instead of the creep mustache, he has a bad comb over. Kevin meets Ernest in secret <clears throat> in the attic. And both Kevin and Ernest pick up a friendship with each other where Kevin doesn't want Ernest to be exploited as TV fodder by... Gay camp icon Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> Kevin's best friend is the next door band geek, Joy, who seems awfully interested in him from the get-go. Joy's primary purpose is to be almost a romantic sidekick. 
but when the teenagers are out in a motel room to smooch together, they instead just cuddle. Note, I think this scenario of being set up for a hetero romance but not following through was a rite of passage for gay teenagers for decades. <laughs> After their non-sexual encounter, about 80 minutes in, Joy is then booted out of the movie, only to return for the post-climax denouement where she and Kevin almost share what might have been the most uncomfortable, chastest kissed Chase test kiss ever if Kevin's parents didn't interrupt them. Meanwhile, Ernest the Ghost is being chased by the government for some reason, and when they catch him, they send him to an isolated room where they are torturing him to not be a ghost for some reason. And Tignataro, who was hell-bent on catching him, suddenly lets him go. It is a completely useless side plot, with Tig not even turning in a good performance that should have been excised from the film. Except, if one reads it as Ernest getting chased by conservatives who send him to ghost, con 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 ghost conversion camps, <laughs> and when they can't do anything with him, they let him go. <laughs> the actual backstory of Ernest is that he's a widowed father whose daughter was taken from him back in the 70s by a male friend, in quotes, who killed him to kidnap his daughter. Of course, gay men often had their children ripped from them back in the 70s due to their homosexuality. Finally, Ernest's final touching moment in the tear-soaked goodbye scene that includes both his daughter and Kevin isn't with his daughter, but a hug from Kevin. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it feels like a story about a gay teenager finding himself through some non-pedophilic help from an older gay man who had some rough times himself. Of course, this could all be BS, and I was just bored while watching the movie, so I imagined myself watching a better movie, but maybe not. <laughs> I'm inclined to think that you perhaps put more thought into this than Chris Landon did, but who knows? Maybe that's what he had I in mean, mind all Christopher along. Landon is a gay filmmaker. He is. He is. Maybe that was the there point. There is of the, that. Maybe that was the point of the movie. <sighs> maybe. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> um, I'll tell you, um, you are right about one thing, uh, Julius, about the... Uh, separation of queer parents from their children uh, is something that has been a historical fact. And now we have a lot of hideous uh, Republican legislators who are seeking to do the same thing all over again by taking trans kids away from their supportive parents and or taking kids away from trans parents. So... Everybody, this is an emergency. High alert. Be aggressive about fighting this in any possible way you can. Sick of this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so fed up right now with, eh? with the anti-queer, anti-trans stuff going on out in the world. And good liberals are... are not doing enough. Not yelling loudly enough. And and keep an eye on, you know, your local, you know, your city council stuff, your state legislation, because yeah. a lot of this uh, really gross uh, uh, anti-trans stuff is happening on the state legislature level. So, you know, look into it. See what's happening in your state. Find out who your representative is. Give them an earful if they need it or support if they need it. Uh, but yeah. This is a thing. It's happening right now. It's despicable. It is. And that is our program. I got a chicken thigh. <laughs>
gotta, I, 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 I'm so hungry. <laughs> I'm so very hungry. You are the cat in the second Babe movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm that little kitten. Too hungry. In the second Babe movie, right, Pig in the City. Dave, Pig in the City. <laughs> <laughs> Only the kitten. <laughs> Only the kid. Uh, do check out my other podcasts, please. Breakfast All Day with Chrissy Lemire. We're on YouTube and uh, all your podcatchers. Maximum Fun, uh, Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network, and it is Max Fun Drive if you want to go help out with that. And um, uh, Deck the Hallmark, where I've been popping in on Mondays to review uh, non-Hallmark, non-Lifetime 2022 Christmas movies. We just talked about Shudder's Christmas Bloody Christmas I'm amazed Bran... I love that you made Bran watch that. Hey, Bran made Bran watch that. But uh, yeah, just watching him get through the plots... Oh, wait, Bran chose? He did. (laughs) But I didn't read the list that he sent out, so I wasn't able to warn him. So that's on me. Why why didn't you read the list? Because I just... Why did you you fail delicate little Bran? Because I was just like, sure, fine, whatever. You know, I I should have looked. Next time I'll, I'll know to look. Anyway, um, I mean, you did make him watch an Arnaud de Plasson film, so that, there is that. <laughs> also, as Dave mentioned, patreon.com slash linoleum knife and uh, pick up Kristen Lopez's book. And who knows, maybe she'll be on our show one day. That's the, 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 the plan. <laughs> next time. The plan is the next episode. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, please uh, subscribe to the show. Uh, if you do so at Apple Podcasts, leave us a five star review there. We will uh, read your review on the air. Uh, you can also leave us positive feedback in the many places that we stream, including uh, Spotify and Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, uh, TheLounge.com, CastBox, Podbean, Google Play, Amazon Music. Um, thank you, Blue, for our wonderful theme song. You can check out his ever exciting and uh, you know prolific career he's just constantly writing and producing and singing and doing things at blue bleu dot bandcamp dot com uh you can follow us on the social media at linoleum cast drop us a line at linoleum podcast at gmail.com just like julius and uh we'll be back next time with more until then goodbye <laughs>